This is HEC Media. Welcome to Talking with Authors, a program dedicated to speaking with some of the best-selling authors around, covering many different genres. I'm your podcast host, Rod Milam, for HEC Media. With the help of independent bookstore Left Bank Books and the St. Louis County Library, we're able to sit down with amazing writers and thought leaders to discuss their work, their inspiration, and what makes them special. By the way, you can also watch video versions of most of these interviews by going to hecmedia.org. Now, after the initial weeks of the coronavirus global shutdown, we were able to set up remote video interviews with many authors. And in the coming weeks, we'll be providing you with the audio of these interviews. Now, sound quality might be slightly different than our previous podcasts, but they still contain the same great content you've come to expect. Today, our guest is a three-time recipient of the Ellery Queen's Reader's Award for Best Short Story of the Year and author of over 35 novels, Jeffrey Deaver. We spoke with him via Zoom in May of 2020 about his latest book, The Goodbye Man, by publisher Penguin Random House. His books have sold over 50 million copies worldwide and feature protagonists like his exceedingly popular detective, Lincoln Rhyme, and fiction's best-known secret agent, James Bond. The Goodbye Man is the second book to feature his latest hero, Coulter Shaw, an itinerant reward seeker. But regardless of what character he's writing about, he always tries to approach his work with one main goal in mind. It doesn't matter how I enjoy the time I'm writing. It's about the reader getting a good product that will satisfy them, make them smile, give them an exciting page-turning book with no digression, no far-fetched plots, no excessive gruesome, no children or animals who are injured in, in the story. We want a book that will give us a happy happy time like on a roller coaster. We get on a roller coaster knowing we're going to be scared, but also knowing that at the end, we're going to get off and then go eat a hot dog and have cotton candy. That's what I want my books to be. We'll learn how he plans those satisfying reads, hear some stories from his years on the road doing book tours, and get an idea of what his newest book is all about. International best-selling author Jeffrey Deaver joins us now on this edition of Talking with Authors from HEC Media and HEC Books. Here's our host this time, Angie Weidinger. Jeffrey Deaver, thank you so much for joining us. I'm delighted to be with you, Angie. You know, you've had, what, more than 40 novels now that you've written. This has to be one of the strangest book releases. The Goodbye Man has to be one of the strangest releases you've ever had. I've been a full-time writer now for uh, 30 years, over 30 years now, uh, written for 35 years. And I started touring uh, quite early. I knew that it was important not only to write the books, but to get out and meet your fans and as someone who sits in a dark room uh, most of my life, I like to get out and meet fans. So I've been touring for a long, long time, and I've had some very bizarre instances, incidents on some of those tours. But this is the strangest, no doubt about it. You said you've had some, some unusual things happen on book tours. <laughs> Anything <laughs> remarkable that you'd want to share that, that was just out of, you well, didn't we, expect to happen? No, no. So we have three hours for this interview, correct? <laughs> right. <laughs> 35 uh, years worth, right? I'll just, I'll just tell you one, uh, one uh, fascinating story. I, um, when I launched the um, James Bond book, I wrote Carte Blanche. We launched it in England first because Bond is an iconic uh, uh, British hero. I was on a motorcycle with a Bond girl, self-described Bond girl that did not come from me, but she was the, um, uh, she was the, uh, uh, what do they call it? The stunt motorcyclist, the lead 
uh, stunt woman motorcyclist in Europe. And uh, to launch the book, she took me for a ride on the uh, Triumph, the 1965 Triumph that figured in one of the James Bond books. And um, my girlfriend was with me at the time. And I said, is it okay if I hold on to her? Because they don't have seat belts on motorcycles. Uh, the, the funniest story about touring, I'll have to tell you though, was uh, I was in um, Maryland with another author. We were on tour and a fellow came into the store to hear our event. Now we were very new to the business and there were very very few people in the audience. I think only three or four people. And um, they didn't know who we were. We didn't sell any books. And the fellow that I'm, I'm thinking of came up to us afterwards and said, wow, I, I read about your, your book event here. Um, and we said, well, great. Do you want to buy a book? Because no one else had. He said, no, no, I'm not interested in that. But it said you were staying in downtown Baltimore. I wonder if I get a ride back with you. And you know, we gave him a ride back because who knew who it might have been? It might have been a movie producer uh, just testing us out or down on his luck. But we weren't murdered by anybody. But uh, Angie, I could go on and on. But, uh, but oh, I, my gosh. You uh, discourage potential writers out there. Uh, touring is absolutely wonderful. And uh, as much as I enjoy this virtual tour, I can't wait till we get back to normal. I love meeting fans, love hearing uh, what they like about my books and what they don't like about my books. Yeah. Too. Oh, those are great. Thank you for sharing those. Well, for people who haven't had the chance to read it yet, could you give us a little description of The Goodbye Man? Sure. The Goodbye Man features my new series character, Coulter Shaw, who premiered last year in The Never Game, a book about murder in Silicon Valley. Now, Coulter Shaw has an unusual career. He travels around the country in his Winnebago, that's a RV camper, I think you know, most of our listeners or viewers will be familiar with. And he looks for rewards that have been posted by either the government, maybe for an escaped convict, or for a terrorist that the, uh, the feds haven't been able to find, or for, a, um, say, a missing uh, student. Uh, parents offer reward privately. And the government, uh, the police may not be interested in getting involved right away. There's kind of a window of the missing person time. It has to be 48 hours, sometimes a week or so. But Coulter Shaw um, learns about the rewards and travels around the country to find them. Now, the Never Game ended with Coulter Shaw being presented with two choices of where to go next. Uh, springboards, if you will, into two different plots. One was to pursue some uh, neo-Nazis who had defaced a church and shot someone, apparent hate crime in Washington state, or he could return to his family settlement in the uh, Sierra Nevada mountains of California and follow uh, a lead as to who might have murdered his father. And he was torn between the, the two. And I, as an author, was torn between the two. So I launched The Goodbye Man, uh, which occurs right after The Never Game. It picks up only about, um, I guess, 13 hours after The Never Game ends and takes him to uh, Washington State. He pursues the... Uh, the evildoers there who, if you know, you know anything about, about my books, they may not be quite as evil as we thought, but maybe they are. Twists and turns. And then we launch into yet another story that does take us closer to his, um, to his father. It's, it's like all my books. It's a roller coaster ride. It takes place over uh, about three days. It has lots of internal reversals. It has a lot of esoterica about a subject that I didn't know anything about, but I learned uh, a great deal of in the uh, researching the book about cults uh, like James Jones and Waco, the Branch Davidian. And then it's got a surprise ending. And then following that, there's a surprise ending. And after that, there's a, oh, let me think a surprise ending because I love my surprise endings. 
It was such a pleasure to read. I really enjoyed this book it, just because there's so many, like you said, the surprises and it was a lot of fun. So thank, thank you. you. You mentioned the cults and, and it's so interesting. And, and this was actually based on the idea, I guess, I, I read that you were actually approached by someone who was interested in, in having you join a cult. Is that right? Yes, yes, that's correct. And I won't go into the details. I could play that story out for quite a while. But um, a woman, uh, when I was uh, practicing law in New York, um, met a woman through the law firm, and uh, she was single, attractive, quite interesting. And I was single. I can't verify the attractive part, but I was definitely, <laughs> definitely single. And uh, we kind of hit it off in the office, and she invited me to uh, – uh, what I thought was a date, and it turned out to be a recruitment for a, uh, a cult in a, a large ballroom in a hotel in Manhattan. And it was a scary, scary thing. I, I didn't feel physically uh, threatened, I, I think. I'm not sure. I felt psychologically pressured. I felt the, uh, the tension that one feels being in a crowd where the crowd is kind of controlled by a mob mentality. And we, we were uh, supposed to do workshops with uh, just sitting across from someone and staring at them for long periods of, of time, uh, I guess, to kind of control your mind. I, I don't really know. I, I'm not a joiner. I don't play well with others. There was no doubt I was not tempted. But, uh, but to sit in the audience and see this frenzy around me and then see this fellow up on stage who was a, a, you know, a charismatic uh, a guy, a slick, uh, probably in his 40s, good looking, dressed in, in white, I recall, but I'm not. That was a long time ago. But to see them sell their souls to this man uh, really made me feel um, uneasy, but also not only for myself, but uneasy for them because these were professional people. She, she was recruiting other people, other professionals as well, and people who you think would have um, you know, a good, good sensibility, be well-balanced, uh, you know, presumably have some resources, but you'd be surprised at how uh, easily they were snagged and pulled into the uh, – the organization. And, and I knew then someday I'm going to write about that, but I have a lot of ideas and it just took about 40 years to put that on the uh, front burner. That's amazing. So I just sat back there, just kind of waiting for the right opportunity. I'm very lucky. I am a, a pedestrian writer. My prose is functional. It may have to do with the fact, as we were talking about earlier, I went to journalism school and I'm not a great stylist like the great uh, writer Annie Prue or Cormac McCarthy or David Foster Wallace. I, I tell kind of meat and potato stories, but I, I'm very lucky. I've been given a, a good imagination and the ideas have never been a problem. I have lots and lots of ideas for stories. The idea file will long outlast me. So I kind of have to pick and choose the ones that I think will be the most uh, productive and efficient to write. And that's one that just sat there. And then I thought, well, probably time to, uh, to, to write it. Wow. And you mentioned the man that was leading that cult. Was, was he any inspiration for Master Eli in this story? Probably he was. A little bit? I have to say, when I do my, my books, I, and we can talk about technique later if you like, but I, I can, just as an aside, I do a great deal of research ahead of time. I do a great deal of outlining. I, I don't write the book itself uh, for probably eight months. I do the outline and then research for eight months. So I must have read... 30 books on cults. The internet is very helpful. Uh, so I based it on a lot of charismatic, uh, charismatic figures. And he, he was, he probably planted the seed, but the fact is it was a long time ago and I didn't take notes. If I, right. I think I was writing then 
but it may have even preceded my attempt at writing fiction. So, uh, but his, uh, when I wrote the, the Goodbye Man, I saw him on stage in my mind's eye very clearly. I noticed he says gorgeous a lot. I just didn't know if there was inspiration. <laughs> Seems like well, a... Well, there was inspiration for that, but it was not necessarily, necessarily um, the cult leader. So, Is it a certain politician, perhaps? It could very well be. You might, oh. think that, you might think that, but I couldn't possibly say. Obviously not. It's all for us to, to guess on, right? I just was curious about that. Well, you touched on a little bit about your outlining process, and I was, I was curious because you mentioned this, this thread that was both through in, in The Never Game and then The Goodbye Man about Coulter Shaw's father's murder and him mm -hmm. wanting to look into that. So I was curious, you, you, you say that you outline each book. Have you outlined the series? Because I know that's a thread. Do you know how that's going to play out, his father's murder? Uh, yes. Yes, I do. And... Um, in The Never Game, we learned about a mysterious document that may have clues as to why his father was murdered, if in fact he was murdered. We're not quite sure about that until the end of the book. And then it, I'm not going to answer that question, but then it looks like the story is going to go in a certain way. Well, in The Goodbye Man, we learn more facts based on that mysterious document that propels Coulter Shaw at the end of The Never Game into yet another book um, that is being written right at the moment. Now, I'm working on two books at once. I'm writing another Lincoln Rhyme book. We can talk about that later if you like. Uh, but I'm doing another, a sequel to The Never Game and The Goodbye Man that will uh, launch Shaw the minute The Never Game, I'm sorry, the minute The Goodbye Man ends into the third book, the trilogy about his father's um, situation, his father's plight, which is much broader than his father. Now, when that book is done, um, we will know the whole arc of Coulter Shaw's family and father. But from that point on, then, with certain characters from the three books coming back into the future Coulter Shaw books, we are simply going to follow Coulter Shaw as he jumps in his, uh, in his Winnebago and drives around the country involving himself in murder and mayhem and terrorism, all kinds of secret stuff going on. Uh, but I wanted to get the trilogy done because... One of my rules about writing is that you have to, as an author, raise questions in your readers' minds. I was going to say every chapter, frankly, I think every few pages. And you raise questions at the end of the book. And these are important questions. Readers want to know the answer. But you have to answer the questions. You have to resolve every single conflict. Otherwise, you're left with dissatisfied readers. And that's a sin. You cannot do that. Readers have to be happy and enjoy your books, and, and they have to breathe a sigh of relief and smile at the end. Um, and, and so I have to resolve that Coulter Shaw father story within three books, and then we can go on and, uh, and pursue the, um, uh, the rest of Coulter Shaw's adventures. So did you actually outline the trilogy then? Or... Yes. So yes. The... Now, I, I will say... Uh, my outlines are very extensive. The outline for the, uh, the Goodbye Man, for instance, was about 140 pages long. Now, um, the outline for the arc of the three novels, that was more a schematic, but within that schematic, each book is outlined to the tune of about 130 to 140 pages. But the whole schematic for the, the three-book three trilogy 
is, I don't know, probably 10 pages. And that outlining process is something that, that I read somewhere that it took you a couple of years to kind of figure out how important that was, right? You, you, what do you call it? The mint toothpaste business plan? The, the mint toothpaste business plan. I'll tell, tell you about that very quickly. Say I was a product designer at Procter & Gamble and I go to my boss and I say, I've got a great product idea. My girlfriend and I had some pate last night, pate's, you know, liver. Um, why don't we come up with a toothpaste that's liver flavored? And nobody's ever done it before. And it'll make us very um, popular and uh, get us a lot of press. And my boss says, sure, it'll get us a lot of press and it'll get you fired, which you are right now, because nobody wants liver flavored toothpaste, right. mint flavored toothpaste. Well, I want to write books that are mint flavored books. What does that mean? It doesn't matter how I enjoy the time I'm writing. It's about the reader getting a good product that will satisfy them, make them smile, as I was saying earlier, give them an exciting page-turning book with no digression, no far-fetched plots, no excessive gruesome, no children or animals who are injured in, in the story. We want a book that will uh, give us a happy, happy time like on a roller coaster. We get on a roller coaster knowing we're going to be scared, but also knowing that at the end, we're going to get off and then go eat a hot dog and have cotton candy. That's what I want my, my books to be. And only through outlining am I able to do that. Now, many authors can sit down with a blank screen or blank page of paper and craft a wonderful book. Many wonderful crime writers do that. I'm not able to do that. I write a very tightly paced book. I have three plots going on at once. Uh, some of my ideas probably won't work. And if I start out with an outline, I learn within a week or so or 10 days it's not going to be a book and I throw it out. If I start writing and have 100, 200, 300 pages of, of decent prose and then realize it's not going to go anywhere, look at all the time I've wasted. So an outline helps me produce mint flavored books. So you have this large outline and then you write your book. And, and, and I read somewhere that then you'll rewrite it 20 to 30 times before showing it to your publisher because it's so long is that is that the reason well partly it's long i do rewrite uh, about 50 times actually no oh, wow. at the end of those 50 times it's not page one to page 480 it's it's fine tuning over and over again I've, I've, i'm honing it down i i can i'm not comparing myself to michelangelo by any means but <laughs> it's like doing a sculpture you know you get it there's a big hunk of marble. It's a big square. It looks like something out of Minecraft. And uh, what, uh, what do I do? Okay, I kind of picture where it's going to go. I look at the outline, start chipping away. And then I revise that and revise that. Um, but uh, yes, that's, uh, that's true before my publisher sees it. Uh, and let me say this too, because it's, it's important. You should do the first rewrites on the computer because that's where you may need to globally search and replace a character name, for instance. Or you might think chapter five would be better revised and moved to chapter 32 in that spot. And, and the computer makes it much easier to do that. But then you have to stop, <clears throat> print the book out, and then start your second half of your rewrites, uh, rewrites 26 through 50 on paper, because I guarantee you are not only going to see typos that you missed on the computer screen. And I mean, you've looked at the computer screen a hundred times and missed them, but you will miss substantive errors and ideas that you thought were so obvious and readers were going to pick up, pick up on instantly when in fact, no, they're obfuscated. 
Only by seeing it on paper can you do that. And my final, uh, uh, my final trick, which has not gone into my, um, my writing course yet, but it will, and I do seminars about writing that you know, kind of synopsize my, my entire philosophy of, of writing, a four-hour workshop. I've done this. I take the book and run it through a program called Natural Reader. You can use Word too, Word, the Microsoft Word, Word Processing Program, and a number of others, but it reads the manuscript word for word. And if you pay for the, just pay a little bit, I think it's like $10 a year or $10 to buy it. You can pick the voices and it's not, it's, it's a little stilted. It doesn't get the pronunciations right, but that doesn't matter. What it forces you to do when you follow along with a pencil or pen on the manuscript and listen to it, you will see a dozen more typos that you miss. I cannot advocate this enough. You have to listen to the book. Or if you don't want to do that, have someone read it aloud to you. But don't do it yourself because you're going to tend to skip and go too quickly. Oh, that's, inter- that's really interesting. I never thought about that, but it makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm, I'm wondering, so you, you had to obviously cut out quite a bit of the goodbye, man. I mean, you just read your outline, a part that was taken out. Was there any part of it that you thought, oh, gosh, I really hate taking this out, but I just have to? No, no, it's, no. Again, it's all about the, the reader. If I write something that's, uh, that I think is just fantastic, that's the best prose ever written, I'm very suspect of it. <clears throat> because it means it's something that I have a personal attachment to. I shouldn't have a personal attachment. I should be like the pilot who's uh, flying passengers and he looks out the window or she looks out the window and sees a thunderstorm and he or she thinks it's a thunderstorm. I fly through these all the time. No big deal. Or sees a beautiful sunset. That's eh, a sunset. I got more important things to do. My job is to craft a book so that I think readers will like it. Now, if I think readers would like a particular passage, then it's not coming out. I may need to rework it if it's too long. Then it's not coming out. Or if I think um, a passage is too complicated, that's my my bane. I like my very twisty plots, and I like surprises, but occasionally you can get a little too clever for your own good. And uh, readers, I think, have the potential to end up scratching their heads and saying, I don't quite get what's going on here. And I'll give you an example. My new book, uh, the one next year, no title yet, uh, is about uh, a Lincoln rhyme adventure, the character from The Bone Collector. And there's a scene, a courtroom scene, that um, is, uh, had to be written in a, structured in a very specific way to put clues into the book that would then come back later for the big surprise. Because when the surprise happens, readers have to hearken back to the clue right away, because if if they they say, oh wait a minute, this this came out of left field, that's cheating. That's that's liver flavor toothpaste. <laughs> so anyway, the clues had to be presented in this this courtroom scene, and I wrote it um, a long time ago, a long chapter, and then I went back and read it and said, I don't understand what the hell's going on here, and I wrote it. And so <laughs> I just uh, yesterday, in fact, I, I just pulled it out cut it, put it in a separate document so I didn't have the rest of the book around it to confuse me. And I rewrote the whole thing from start to finish, streamlined it, and cut out all, I probably saved two or three paragraphs, settings, what the Center Street Courthouse was like, where Lincoln was in the courtroom, uh, that. But everything else went, just threw it out entirely. And uh, so, uh, but, so what I have now, 
it will, I only wrote it yesterday and it, it's, there's only one draft of it. So it will be rewritten again uh, considerably, but it will be a much cleaner reader friendly passage. Jeffrey Deaver on his writing philosophy. In just a bit, we'll learn about what he enjoys doing when he's not crafting thrillers and how fans of his work can be surprised when they meet him. I did a, a book event a few years ago and a woman came up to me and says, Mr. Deaver, I'm, I'm actually kind of disappointed. And I said, I'm sorry, was it something about the book? She said, no, you were funny. You seem nice. I, I wanted you to be more like a ghoul. And um, I said, sorry. Well, she was joking a little bit, but then she said, it's not what I expected. We'll hear his feelings on the screen adaptations of his novel, The Bone Collector, and get some insights on the setting of his books and learn how he balances writing multiple books at once as we continue on Talking With Authors from HEC Media. Educate Today offers an ever-growing library of the highest quality video resources, curriculum materials, and interactive programs, all of which are designed to challenge thinking, inspire creativity, and empower learning of students, educators, parents, and lifelong learners. And you can find out more about all these programs by going online to educate.today. That's educate.today. One of the things I also wanted to talk to you about was the, the setting. I know, I know you've talked about how, you know, write about a place that you know well. And I know sometimes you go to that place and, and kind of reacquaint yourself with those surroundings. Did, did you go to the wilderness of Washington State for the Goodbye Man? Um, well, I had, I had been there. Yes, I've been to um, every place I write about, I've been. I wrote a book a few years ago called A Maiden's Grave. And I set this exciting scene where two girls have been kidnapped, managed to get away on a life raft, or I guess an inner tube, and cascade down this, uh, this dangerous, de dangerous death-defying rapids. And they end up safe and they're rescued, a big set piece where they're pulled out of the water and come, some people almost drown, but they're safe. And I set that in a real creek or river that I had, had been at. And then I started to get the emails because, uh, yes, I had been there. I had been there 20 years before. That is 20 years before it was dammed up. And the worst part, I should say it this way, the, the most danger presented by that creek now was that you would trip over a cow pie and sprain your ankle and wrist. And if, I'm not gonna describe what a cow pie is, but if anybody out there is really curious, you can look it up. Yeah. But had I been there? Yes. Had I uh, updated? My knowledge of it, no. So I go to everywhere. I've been to the wilderness of uh, uh, Washington State, although not as wildernessy as Colton Shaw is. I've been to uh, Gig Harbor, um, uh, the Sierra Nevadas. I've been to all of those, all of those places. Now the Snoqualmie Gap, where this cult is, it, that's a fictitious place, though, right? That's fictitious. Yeah. Okay, because you know, I googled it and I couldn't seem to find yeah, it, so I was curious. Yeah. yeah. Well, after the book, they closed down. No, I'm joking. It was. <laughs> <laughs> That's not good. It wasn't good for tourism, was no, it? <laughs> people stay but I do um, create um, fictional uh, entities and fictional burgs and villages to some extent, because I, uh, I I don't want people to feel bad. I had in this book I have corrupt police people. I have some very good police people, but just like. In real life, there are good people and there are corrupt people and good police people and bad police people. And I didn't want to associate anyone with a, um, a, a, a real uh, police organization. So I have in Pierce County, the, a real county where um, a Gig Harbor is located, Tacoma is located, Washington State, 
I made up a different police department. I think it's a public safety office. So uh, no one will be upset. Nothing I can do about the NYPD. And sorry, but uh, that's just the way it is. So, uh, but I do create a lot of fictional places, but I, I go to them. And uh, now uh, my new books, the two books I'm working on right now, Colter Shaw's new book, where he uh, returns to a, a particular town, almost gave it away. Uh-oh, have to be clever, more clever about that. Returns to a particular town. Uh, I, I've been there uh, many times, so that's going to be, uh, that's good to go. And Lincoln Rhyme, of course, is set in New York City, so that's going to be good as well. You've talked a couple of times about uh, Lincoln Rhyme and, and the Bone Collector, and, you know, I, I, he's been in now, what, 15 books? Is that how many are in the... Probably 14 or 15, yeah. Okay. And, and now, is it true? I, I saw somewhere that you thought about killing him off in that first book, The Bone Collector? Yes. Uh, if you're not familiar with Lincoln, uh, you are obviously, Angie, but if uh, viewers aren't, list, uh, aren't familiar, um, he's a quadriplegic was, uh, that was paralyzed from the neck down. He was head of the New York City uh, crime scene unit many years ago and was injured on the job and was paralyzed. Uh, so the bone collector opens with him having been paralyzed for several years and facing the existential decision that anybody with a, 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 a catastrophic illness or disease or life-ending condition faces, does he or she want to preempt the end and maybe speed it along? And, you know, it's a very valid question. We all may have to face that at some point in our lives. And I thought it was worth looking at because I like my books to be crime roller coasters, but I also like to, you know, consider issues in more depth. I think it gives the book more resonance and touches the reader's heart more. Um, and, and, you know, gives me the chance to look at things I really wasn't that familiar with and maybe introduce topics that readers might enjoy uh, learning about as well. And assisted suicide was one of those topics in, in the book. And so through the end of the book, he's debating uh, should I kill myself? And um, he's, he is an improbable hero. He's a Sherlock Holmes in a way, but Sherlock Holmes, you know, got out into the wilderness. He carried a gun occasionally. He right. used his fisticuffs against the bad guy. And uh, Lincoln Ryan was not able to do that. And so I debated, this book probably is a one-off. I enjoyed writing it. And then, um, uh, then I, I thought, you know what? I kind of like him. That happened. And then I came up with a great twist at the end, a great yes. twist that would permit the series to continue. And it's a good thing I did. And the answer to the question of why was it a good thing that you did, Jeff, I can answer four words. Denzel Washington, Angelina Jolie, because as soon as the book came out, uh, Universal Pictures picked it up and made uh, a movie that I thought was a was a good film. I had no involvement in it, no interest in being involved in it. But it's, it, it has become a um, really a cult classic. Uh, I was in China on book tour a few years ago, and I'm watching it on on Chinese TV. And in Asia, at least in China, I was in I think Taiwan. They use subtitles, but the subtitles are in Chinese. And the characters are dubbed in Chinese because the dialects are very different. 
So, so people who are fluent in Szechuan uh, can't necessarily understand Cantonese. And I, I may be misstating that, but, it's, but I know there are many dialects there. So I was watching uh, The Bone Collector in Chinese, Denzel Washington, Angelina, speaking in Chinese characters, in Chinese, Chinese language, with subtitles on the bottom in Chinese. And it was, um, I, uh, I got my phone out. I had to take a picture of that, of course, and it was... Uh, yeah. But anyway, the movie came out, and so he became a serious character. And he, he is just universally, universally popular now around the world. Well, here we are 20 years later, and NBC has the sitcom, Lincoln, Lincoln yeah. Rhyme, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I should say it's not a sitcom. It's a drama show. It's, um, a, um, uh, it's very much like CSI or NCIS. And uh, not to say that Lincoln doesn't get it, played by Russell Hornsby, uh, doesn't get his his uh, you know clever phrases in in occasionally, but it did. Well, I, I don't qu know quite what's going to happen. It did well. Uh, a lot of people tuned in. It was on network uh, TV, and you can you can stream it if you're on NBC on demand and so forth. It was very well, very well done. Ariel Cabell played Angelina, and one of my all-time favorites um, was um, uh, Chris Moltisanto. He uh, plays um, Lon Salido. And it did very well. But if they were going to pick up a second season, they were going to do that this month. And now all production is shut down. So right. we'll see what happens. Well, and I, I was curious as I was watching the, the series a little bit, because, you know, I know that Lincoln is not a fan of the CSI kind of show. So I, no. I was like, hmm, I wonder what Lincoln would think. <laughs> well, I actually wrote in one of my books a long time ago. Um, it was a very meta reference or self-referential reference. And somebody mentioned to Lincoln Ryan, now this was in the, in the book, somebody mentioned to Lincoln Ryan and he said, I read a book that was written about you, Lincoln, and it was about one of my books, of course, didn't mention the Deaver name, but this character said, what did you think about it, Lincoln? And he said, I started it. I couldn't get halfway through it. He didn't know what the hell he was doing. And so... Um, <laughs> That's great. Yeah. I thought <laughs> I had a lot, of, I've had a lot of fans like that. What book was that? I can't remember. You don't remember? It would That's have been around the time of The Vanished Man. Okay. Chair, sort of in the middle round there. That's great. That's great. Well, you know, so I'm curious because, you know, so you have Coulter Shaw, you have Lincoln Rhyme, and then you also have Catherine Dance, all mm -hmm. these series. So, and you said that you're writing both a, a Lincoln Rhyme and a Coulter Shaw book right now? Yes. So when you go about doing that, do you, what do you have to do to get yourself in the right headspace? for each of those different series. Yeah, I, um, I don't really have a lot of, lot of trouble doing it. I thought, I, it, I used to have, have a little more trouble when doing two books at once. And so my approach to that was to um, do an outline for one book and then write the prose for the other book. But that's when I was writing books that had very different voices. For instance, my William Jeffrey series, William Jeffrey's series, which was actually closer to the uh, Coulter Shaw kind of character, but more murder mystery oriented. He was about a peripatetic uh, hero, but they were more murder mysteries. Now I write thrillers. A thriller is a book that answers the question, what's going to happen? It's bigger, multiple plots, lots of stuff going on together. The Coulter Shaw books are the same. Uh, they're bigger. Uh, we want to know what's going to happen. There may be a murder mystery element. There might be a body in the background or the past that we want to learn about. But the voice is pretty much the same. Lincoln's voice and Coulter's voice are, are very similar. You know, they're rugged, 
heroes, rugged male heroes uh, with a sensitive side to them uh, and uh, intellectual. They're very thoughtful. They, they tend not to shoot first and ask questions later. Lincoln can't really shoot first. Uh, he could. He's had some remedy of his condition. But uh, right now, it, it hasn't really been a, a problem. But it takes me about a day to get into the book. I, I, let me say this. I will not write, out, write on both of them at the same time in the same day, jumping from day to day. I'll spend a week on one, put it aside, and spend a week on the other. Wow. Wow, very interesting. Well, and, and so I, after you have your outline for each of them, I, I, I saw somewhere that, that sometimes you all write in a dark room, even sometimes with the lights off. Is yeah. that? Yeah. So I have to wonder, I mean, there have been times where I've been reading your book and finish it, and I have to get up and go check my doors <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, check the closet and see if anybody just happens to be there. Do you ever freak yourself out in the dark? I'm, I'm so happy I've, I've terrified you, Angie. That, that just does my heart good to hear that. Oh, gosh. Well, good. I, uh, I, no, I, uh, I don't. Well, I'm nervous like, like everybody else about various things. You know, we're in a climate now where we have to be very careful. I'm concerned about things. I uh, used to like to fly. Last year, I flew 180,000 miles. Well, that's on book tours mostly, book events. That's not going to happen now, so I'm not afraid of that. I'm not a big fan of heights. I'm not a big fan of dangerous snakes. I have copperheads near where I live, and those I keep an eye out for those. But those are just normal things. I'm not afraid of uh, things that go bump in the night. Uh, my job is to scare other people. So I think about what would scare the average prudent person and can pretty much come up with things like that. But as I mentioned earlier, not things that will gross them out. I don't want my books to make you feel uh, sick to your stomach or to be disgusting. Uh, I, I was just reading an author, and I won't, won't say who it is, but um, one animal in the story was killed. And uh, well, actually two animals were killed in the story, gratuitously. They did not need to be killed. I think I've killed two animals in all of my books. One was a mad dog, and one was a raccoon with rabies. So I figured I was putting him out of his misery. And anyway, so that's it. But, you know, there are so many stories where you can tell the author or the script writer or the director is lazy. And they cannot think of a way to do what I aspire to do, follow Alfred Hitchcock's model and create suspense, not create cheap melodrama. And killing a, a dog to send the hero off on his quest to get the bad guys is not necessary. You could create a, let's say the hero has a beloved car that his father had passed down to him and his car means everything. Have him burn down the car. Uh, so anyway, the book, uh, this, this, uh, I gave the guy the one animal that was killed. And then when we hit the second one, that's it. That's it. I, I, I gave it away. Uh, I put it in the pile to, to give away. I should have written on a dead animal warning. But um, it's just, I thought it was gratuitous. I thought it was unnecessary. So um, uh, anyway, but, but things like that are, are not good. Uh, too much digression is bad. Um, so I try to make sure the readers have a fun, exciting time and uh, keep them, you know, keep them smiling at the end. Uh, you know, breathing deeply, but smiling at the end. 
Right, right. Whew. Yeah, well, it's, it's, a, it's a relief to, to see all those things come to an end where you're, like you said, you're happy with the ending. Mm-hmm. Um, well, so I've noticed on some of your social media uh, feeds that you, you like to cook. You oh, yes. show people that you like to cook. Mm-hmm. I, I think you even said that you would like to have owned a restaurant, although it's not the best uh, profit-making endeavor. <laughs> well, I'll, t- I'll tell you my theory about restaurants, Angie. I, um, yes, I've cooked all my life, uh, love to cook. And um, I thought, yeah, maybe I should open a restaurant. But I've learned, I did a little research in this, and I learned there are several things about restaurants, either from, from going to them or looking at financials and things like that. One, the vast majority of them lose money. Two, you've got to serve food that other people want. And three, you've got to deal with a lot of surly, obnoxious people. So I thought, why don't I just eliminate the middleman? I will have dinner parties where I will, by definition, lose a little bit of money, but not a lot because I'm buying the food. I serve the food that I want to serve, and everybody has to be nice to me because I'm giving them free food. So there went the restaurant idea, and I'm perfectly happy with my my plan. So uh, that's well. I don't know how you know a restaurant you know by owned by a suspense writer. I don't know if that's the best marketing ploy. Yeah, you know. <laughs> I could specialize in, say, ribs. and. Oh, gosh, you're right. Well, but what I was getting at is, you know, so you enjoy cooking. I, I see that you um, participate in dog shows. You, you're, you mm-hmm. love your animals. Yeah. You, you've written country music. You, you actually were a folk music performer. Yeah, and, in, in Columbia, Missouri, as a matter of fact, and, uh, some uh, clubs there. Yeah, and then in, in Chicago as well when I, after I moved there. So, you, so I see all these things, and I'm t- I have to tell you, that's not what I was expecting for someone who scares the bejeebers out of me. I did a, a book event a, a few years ago and um, a woman came up to me afterwards and my presentation, it tends to be a little more stand-up comedy because uh, I don't, I never read from the book unless somebody wants me to. You can read the book after you bought it. That's what it's there for. But I, I like people to get to know me. I want people to laugh and smile and I'm not going to scare somebody at the event. What can I do to scare them? But I'm going to try to tell jokes and tell funny stories about my uh, about my my history, like the fellow in Maryland who wanted to ride home after the signing. Uh, so anyway, this woman comes up to me and says, "Mr. Deaver, I'm I'm actually kind of disappointed." And I said, "I'm sorry. Was it something about the book?" She said, "No, you were funny. You, you seem nice. I, I wanted you to be more like a ghoul." And um, I said, "Sorry." Well, she was joking a little bit, but then she said, it, "It's not what I expected." And, uh, but, you know, I have to say, uh, of all the years I've been doing this, I've met many, many wonderful people who write books of all genres, and we're not a lot different. Most of us have extracurricular activities of the sort that I do. Uh, Many, if not most, are far more uh, talented and do far more interesting things than I. Uh, But, uh, you know, on the whole, this is, for many people, it's just a secondary thing. It's a lark, writing the books. And those of us who do it full time, um, we, um, you know, we still have those aspects of our life that we uh, kind of ground us and also give us ideas. I, I, haven't, I, I uh, used to ski. I don't ski much anymore. I have some vertigo issues. And vertigo and skiing is not a good combination. But um, I have a, a great uh, series uh, set in the, the ski country which I uh, think I may write, but, you know, it's so many ideas, so little time. But, uh, but anyway, I, I was skiing one time and just got the idea that this would be a, 
you know, a good kind of scary, uh, scary book to, uh, to write. Well, and, and so you just, you just touched on something I was curious about. So I, I saw somewhere that someone is asking you about retiring or someone was writing about that. That is, that's something that we, your readers need to worry about. No, never. Great. Uh, and I'll, I'll go on record. I will never kill off the main character. Uh, what's the point? People don't, in, don't enjoy that. Um, I will give them good friends that readers come to enjoy and then maybe throw that person off a cliff because there has to be peril in the books. If everything happens uh, for good, if there's no risk that we're going to lose somebody we've formed an attachment to, then people are going to stop turning pages. So I may do that, but I'll never kill off the main character and I'll never, uh, never retire. Well, I know that many of us are glad to hear that. Well, thank you, Angie. Thank you so much for talking with us and writing this spectacular novel. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Real pleasure to talk to you. You take care now. That's international best-selling author Jeffrey Deaver as we spoke with him in May of 2020 about his latest book, The Goodbye Man, by publisher Penguin Random House. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Talking with Authors. Remember, you can watch most of the episodes of this program by going online to hecmedia.org. Also, be sure to follow us on social media. Just search for Talking with Authors on all social media platforms. And if you haven't done so yet, please rate and review this program wherever you get your podcasts. The host and producer of the video version of this program was Angie Weidinger. The video editor was Greg Kopp. Supervising producer was Julie Winkle. Production support by Jane Ballou and Christina Chastain. HEC Media Executive Director is Dennis Riggs. The Talking With Authors Podcast Executive Producer is Christina Chastain. The podcast audio editing was done by Ben Smith. And this podcast episode producer was Paul Langdon. And I'm your host, Rod Milan. Special thanks to St. Louis County Library and Left Bank Books. Again, thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time. This is HEC Media. You wake up, you get dressed, you prepare for a day of challenging and inspiring young minds. But maybe all you get is frustration and anxiety. You are a teacher. In the Classroom Matters podcast, we discuss the good, the bad, and the ugly of education. We talk to people such as Kim Bearden, co-founder of the Ron Clark Academy, Ken Williams, creator of Unfold the Soul, Teacher of the Year Beth Davey, and so many more insightful educators. Because your voice matters, your experience matters, your classroom matters. Classroom Matters with Christy Houle, a new podcast from Educate.today. Subscribe and download now.